pair of hikers from Rhode Island have been rescued after getting stuck in treacherous terrain on Mount Washington. At least one hiker expressed they were feeling symptoms of hypothermia. Officials tell us the hikers were brought to safety around 10 p.m. And thankfully, there were no injuries. This was no drill, but a real-life emergency deep in the White Mountains. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Um, um, um. Okay, do you know my waveform for um? Yeah, oh, I, I could cut out millions of them. <laughs> Do you, can you spot my waveform for um like right oh, away? Absolutely. Yeah, it looks like sort of you like can. a small potato. <laughs> really? I'm not my kidding. um is a potato? It kind of <laughs> does. I'm actually looking at the waveform. So in case you want to use this for the show, the audience, like we we use this recording <laughs> software where it actually like shows your wave files and <laughs> you get Stomp used to does all the editing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so uh, Stomp does all the editing and you have like these these shapes. So. You have these little circles and a space before it and after it. And then there, there are the plosives, which is like a, plop, plop. you know, those are spikes. They look like just a, a line. So, yeah, you can hone in on them and cut them out really quick. Really? Yeah. It's like voodoo magic to me. I have no idea how you do this audio <laughs> stuff. It's really cool. It's fun. Yeah, it's, yeah I'm learning a lot. But we're, so this is episode 27. Uh, very excited to... Welcome our friend Jeff back. We'll get into more detail on the intro, but um, before we start with that, anything interesting you've been up to there, Snop? Not much, really. Just hanging around, doing some search and rescue stuff with the team, just for training and qualifying hikes and things like that. We wrapped up our qualifier for the year, and um, yeah, we're good to go for the winter. Still very Q-word on the scene, which is interesting. Um, I don't know dealing with the uh i'm dealing with a dying cat so we had to get a uh a baby fence for the downstairs so that she wouldn't come down here and urinate on the rug and stuff like that she's really i don't know starting to fail so i put this baby gate up and the executive producer loves to come down here and hang out so (laughs) about an hour ago i hear a i this like awful cry and I opened the door to the studio and there's the executive producer sitting on the other side of the baby gate looking at me like what the hell <laughs> so uh, is the executive producer the one that is on death's door or is no that that's the black one the black uh, tuxedo cat the okay. other one is uh, like a calico but she's really just behaviorally just going downhill fast and uh, I don't know what can you do? You do what you can. I mean, we're trying to care for her, and uh, my my mother's taking her out for walks every day on a leash, and she's uh, really enjoying that. Which is funny. Cats on leashes. We know that that's possible. How old is the cat? I don't know. She was a stray. She walked into our lives like legit, and um, maybe sixteen plus. I would think at this point. So, yeah. But other than that, there's. Not much going on after the... Um, oh, I have a funny story, actually. On the way to the qualifying hike the other day, this is the... Um, what, would, what would you call it? It's the Insecure Kilt Club in Lincoln this weekend, a.k.a. the Highland Games. Are you familiar with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've never gone, but I, I know that's like a thing. Like, 
people basically it's just an excuse to get really drunk i think pretty much and you throw a te- i know you throw a telephone pole that's all <laughs> you do something but i laugh so hard i i went into one of the gas stations in lincoln and i got to give a shout out to this guy he's leaning up against his truck he had a kilt on and um you could tell that he only wears this thing like once a year and he probably pulls it out out of like a dusty drawer or something like that. Um, he looks super awkward in it. He had tan sneakers yeah. on and a tan t-shirt and he's just like looking at his phone and just looking so insecure and squirming and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like 20 feet away, there's this, this guy, this really rugged macho guy in this, this blue Toyota with a, a teardrop under his left eye. I mean, oh, it was boy. just the funniest, con- the stark contrast between these two individuals was hilarious. So yeah, the, the kilts are in town, people, so... you know what that's called right when the well so i don't know like i think the highland games are supposed to be like scottish right but or but i think everyone just sort of misconstrues scotland and ireland and the whole culture oh sure you know i I honestly i'm i have an irish background obviously but i don't even know the difference but i know that the and i just found this out like after you so i'm in my 40s and i just learned this but like all these people that sort of walk around with their irish pride in the boston area you know there's millions of us around Uh, (laughs) apparently we're called plastic patties i guess that's what they call us is like sort of fake irishmen oh what Uh, the the newer generations no every anybody that's sort of american that that pretends like they're super pride you know oh yeah yeah yeah. stuff they're they're, like right off the boat yeah the real irishmen call us plastic (laughs) patties so which i'm pretty much (laughs) over my irish pride days i was over those i think when i was about 18 but (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Have you have you gone to these Highland Games? I knew, I do know that they have that one thing where they 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 throw the telephone pole, which I've always thought is kind of cool. I used to watch that on Wide World of Sports. Yeah, it's pretty epic. I mean, no, no, I've never gone. Um, yeah. I, I drove by it today, uh, actually going over to um, Conway. You know, there's a, a supply chain issue with boots. Have you seen this? It's starting to impact um, gear again. I know there was an issue with snowshoes. Now there's boot issues. Really? I yeah. think there's all kinds of weird things going on because I do. I also heard, first of all, they had to, in Massachusetts, they had to use the National Guard to help with driving buses, to, uh, kids to school with buses. But also, like, I heard that there's like a national trucker shortage as well. And then I've also hmm. seen a bunch of videos where they're saying like these container ships are not coming over at the right time. So I don't know. The, the world's on a brink of disaster. <sighs> I, think. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I had to travel. It made me travel over to the dark side of the state, over by Conway. Oh, no. <laughs> Route 16, be damned. <laughs> yeah. What did you get for boots? Uh, I picked up another pair of uh, A Solo Fugitive GTX, which is my go-to for wet weather, you know, warmer climate, wet weather, because they just stick like a magnet. I, I literally had it. I've had my last pair for three years, and... Um, the heel was breaking down and I was like enough of this I'm s- I think I was actually getting knee pain because of them so yeah oh, I've got, really? a, got a brand new pair I'm psyched yeah. it's like buying a new car have you ever tried them? I've never tried the, that brand I mm. got a new pair so last year I got Vasque Snow Bourbons mm-hmm. and I just ordered them. so everybody will tell you like when you buy gear like oh you have to go to the store and try it on and make sure it fits I never do any of that I just order stuff online and if I like it I like it if I don't I just return it but I bought um, Vasque Snow Bourbons because I needed a 400 gram Thinsulate 
uh, boot mm-hmm. and I got them and I tried them on and I just, you know, my regular size, they were just too narrow for me and I don't have wide feet. Yeah. Um, so I returned those and I got Keen Revel Polar Boots, so R-E-V-E-L, and I like them. They're nice. I used them last winter and I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep using them until they fall apart. Huh. Yeah. So, I've seen those around. They have a good rep for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll, uh, we're going to do a winter hiking series. I think we're probably going to have to do two episodes, but we'll, we'll get into that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, do we want to cover some sponsor and coffee talk? Yeah, we got a couple donations this, uh, time around Sarah without an H S A R A. She's a, like I said, a frequent flyer and, uh, she keeps on donating, which is really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. She gave us three coffees. Uh, James Landoli gave us four coffees and, uh, you know, we put these on the story and stuff like that just so people can read what's going on. And, um, thank you for all the great, uh, comments and feedback i uh, really appreciate it uh makes our job easier knowing that people enjoy it and want to come back and listen it makes us want to work harder right yeah yeah well <laughs> not really i don't really want to work hard but um i'm actually like when can we get another person to help host us so i don't have to do all of this work but right. uh, no it's cool i mean we, we had enough money to um cover the startup cost and i think some of the subscriptions which is appreciated i mean mm. i don't mind pay- i mean we don't mind paying for this but um it's it, it helps yeah and finally we have um a special thanks to reckless brewing again where you'll enjoy the best food craft beer and fun just 15 minutes from franconia notch and many of the four thousand footers and of course less than 10 minutes from the five corners thanks everybody for stopping by this really been cool awesome all right so uh you want to transition into the show summary here yeah this is going to be great i can't wait to hear what jeff's been up to Great, great. Yep. So tonight we're happy to welcome our friend Jeff Rogers back to the podcast. Um, Jeff was on with us on episode 16 to talk about some of his mountaineering adventures. And we covered a rescue uh, that that happened at the time on, on Tuckerman Ravine. And at the end of that show, Jeff was on his way to Alaska on a new kind of adventure where he was going to be sea kayaking the northwest region of Alaska's coastline. And he just got back, so we wanted to get an update on this adventure and find out uh, if he had to fight off any polar bears or any other interesting creatures. <laughs> so um, we're going to do a deep dive on on this in a segment with Jeff. And then if we have time uh, later in the show, we'll cover some recent search and rescue news. And, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can uh, squeeze that in. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, Stomp. So getting started, uh, we got to do a little bear talk here. You got anything? I am, yeah. I'm having a uh, the, the old Tuckermans again. I'm still working on this Tuckermans uh, bunch that I grabbed a couple weeks back. Headwall Alt. I love it. And I love really? it even more because it's not an IPA. <laughs> what, what is an Alt? What is a Headwall Alt? Well, let me see. It's a German-style brown ale. So it's a little darker. It's not as dark as like a stout. Um, it's, it's like a lager ice, I would think. I mean, we'll get Steve on here from uh, Reckless in a couple weeks and uh, let him explain that for us. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So how about you? I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking a beer tonight. I uh, ran out of beer. Rehydrating. So, well, my wife, so my wife got into like Trulies and Seltzers and all that stuff this summer. So we bought. You know, I, I bought a bunch of them for going up to Maine or going to Winnipesaukee or wherever we, we're traveling over the summer. We seem to be doing something every weekend. 
And we had we just have a bunch of these seltzers for different flavors that she didn't like. Mm-hmm. They've all been just collecting in the the refrigerator. So I didn't buy any beer this this weekend. So I'm drinking a Bud Light seltzer, mm-hmm. mango flavored. Oh wow! So <laughs> that's yeah, interesting. Which is, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I'm loving it, but it's it's not horrible. But she she has like four or five of these mango and then black cherry seltzers in the refrigerator and i was like instead of dumping them i'm gonna try one for the show just instead of running out to get beer so bud, great. bud light seltzer mm, yum. <laughs> yeah bud's always gonna be around they're always gonna come up with something to stay relevant yeah exactly um so moving on to recent hikes i i have nothing stop i haven't been out in the last two weekends so I, hopefully you got something you can share with us uh, yeah, a couple just like local things. I did the Welch Dicky Loop a couple times just to stay fit and whatever else. And um, the team went up uh, Greenleaf Trail uh, actually last night, and it was it was a nightmare. We were watching the weather all week, and sure enough, man, the storm, massive thunderstorm came through, rain, heavy monsoon rain. So it stopped right at five o'clock when we were supposed to do the training, and uh, of course. There's nothing like Greenleaf Trail with a thunderstorm and all that stuff. I mean, it was just soaked, super slippery. So, And it was dark, man. By the time we got up to the hut, it was pitch black. Oh, the fall is on us. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I got, uh, I, like I said, I don't have any hikes that I can recap here, but I got to get out soon before it gets too crazy because I have to do that big finish hike um, on oh, Franconia yeah. to finish the 52 with a view and the 25 and the 4,000 foot. So I'm thinking like either the, the first or second week of October, I'm probably going to have to do that at this point okay. just because I got some stuff going on next weekend. So yeah, I was wondering. keep your calendar open, but I'll, I'll let you know what day. Mm. So you're the spicy Cheeto guy this week. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Bunch of stuff going on that's not related to hiking, unfortunately. Yeah, I bet. Same here. It's been sort of crazy. Anyway, cool. let's let's get on to this segment, shall we? Yeah, yeah. So I had to, just for the audience's sake, just to give everyone a heads up, I had to record this session separately. So Stomp, I think, was uh, he might have had a, a hair or a nail appointment or something <laughs> that night. So <laughs> I, I just did, I cut a separate segment with Jeff. Uh, for me and him to go over sort of some, some stuff on the Alaska trip and uh, some other topics, which is a pretty interesting stomp. So why don't we cut away and we'll do that segment and then we can pop back on. Excellent. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. Great. So, um, Jeff, I know we, we sat down on episode 16 and talked about um, that rescue in Tuckerman, and we talked a little bit about some of your mountaineering adventures. And I wanted to have you back in. You know, me and Stomp were both talking about it. We wanted to have you back in to talk about a recap of your Alaska trip. You kind of left it that you were doing the sea kayaking um, trip. And I wanted to find out how that went and talk a little bit more about Alaska. But before we before we get into that, um, one thing that we had sort of talked about when you were on the on the show afterwards is you had mentioned that you had previously done some mountaineering on Mount Fuji, and had dealt with some, I guess some sketchy situations up there, and I think that was from like doing skiing, right? So I wanted to see can you talk a little bit about your your trip to Fuji? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so I uh, we we went to Japan in uh, I think February of 2020. Uh, right before the pandemic really started to shut down uh, international travel and start to affect uh, the world. 
um, two, two, uh, two groups of us, basically we rented two RVs and, uh, we went out and skied a bunch of different areas, whether it be back country or resort. Um, we were out for two weeks and we saw a lot of different areas and one of our big objectives of the whole trip this was kind of my idea cuz i'm always trying to think up these you know tallest high point kind of ski adventures um was to go ski mount fuji um so about a week and a half into the trip after we had done a lot of uh skiing of super deep powder like neck deep powder um, we went and drove down south towards Mount Fuji and uh, went to climb that peak. So um, it, I think it was either seven or eight of us total split between two um, small Japanese style like RVs that are kind of like those transformers that, uh, you know, go from seating four people around a table to sleeping like eight people magically somehow. So. Um, we rented those and we were able to sleep at the resorts and rest nice. stops and things like that as we uh, traveled through Japan. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I don't think I never think of Japan as like a big skiing area, but I know they've done the Winter Olympics and they've got some some big mountains. But what what is the what is the general like skiing or backcountry skiing like in Japan? Right. So, well, Japan is famous for um, like the deepest powder in the world. Um, other than some areas that get just more snowfall, um, you really don't get deeper snow than Japan, especially the quality of snow, right? So, um, for instance, over 30 hours or so, we ended up getting, I think, four feet of snow um, over, you know, the wow. night where we were going to go skiing. And th this just completely buried the, the RVs we were in, um, just opening the door for the rv which is already three feet off the ground you know there's a whole uh <clears throat> step down system to to get to the pavement um was hard so we had to shovel them out and then obviously at the resorts they have an incredible amount of infrastructure and small snow blowers and workers that can clear this snow and they basically work all night when it's that deep they just the snowfall rate is so high that they just continuously clear snow for uh however long the storm's going. So it was uh, definitely a awakening for what really deep skiing is. And in Japan, there's also lines that you'll see, you know, Red Bull athletes doing, you know, huge spines off of different mountain ranges that, um, you know, you're going 60 miles per hour at least the whole way and you got a big run out and you can do that kind of stuff. Um, but it's mostly known for its extremely deep powder skiing and uh, some some uh, highlight films and, and Red Bull movies. Nice. And when you go to Fuji, so I think I know Mount Monadnock is known as one of the most climbed mountains in the world. But isn't Mount Fuji considered the, the, the busiest mountain in the world? Yeah, Mount Fuji is, in fact, the busiest um, that's mainly in the, uh, summer season, or I, I guess it would be yeah, spring, summer, fall there. I don't think it gets snow in the fall there. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but in the winter, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely climbed a lot, but it's much, much more rare. Uh, we had two other parties on the, on the mountain, on our side of the mountain when we were climbing it. 
Um, and you know, a lot of the stuff is just shut down. Right. So in the summer, there's a train station that's like halfway up the mountain and that just shuttles people up and there's huge, you know, massive walkways and ropes and all this stuff and water fountains and rest huts. Um, all that infrastructure is closed and buried in snow, uh, similar to Mount Washington in the winter. So, uh, it sees a lot less people. Okay. Yeah. All right. And did you, were you able to skin, skin up any part of this or was it mostly just um, hiking up with the skis on your back? Uh, there was a lot of skinning. The first couple of thousand feet was uh, sticky enough and not steep that we were able to skin. Uh, but it really ended up being just a big cone of ice uh, at the end of the day. So um, the majority of it we did cramp on. Nice. And then um, you made it You made it all the way up to the top and you were able to su- successfully ski down? No, no, I wish. So what happened on Fuji is uh, one of my buddies, uh, Michael, he, he was coming up. We were at about 10,000 feet or a little over 10,000 feet, I think it was. And um, I was in front or I think maybe second to the front of the group and this is no rope um we're all just cramponing separately um we do have a rope in our kit but um we didn't use it at this point we didn't determine that it was necessary there's no crevasses and it's just you know straightforward icy cramponing uh, but mike he he ended up slipping and self-arresting on a slope that was right below a hut that was relatively buried in snow and was a flat spot Uh, so he fell and I saw, you know, I saw him on the ground after he had fallen. I didn't see the actual slide and, um, just looked back and I said, oh, that's weird. Mike's like, you know, on his stomach, um, a little bit farther down than he was. And then it kind of clicked for me. Oh, he, he might've self-arrested. And I was like, all right, well, good. He slipped. He self-arrested that. That's great. Um, you know, didn't take anybody out. He's not sliding down the mountain and he's getting back on his feet. It looks like, or he's moving around. Um, and then he didn't end up getting back on his feet. And I, he was calling out for me to come down to him. And at this point, I mean, we're up at 10,000 feet or so and the weather wasn't perfect. I mean, it was great weather day, very clear, Mm -hmm. but, um, we still had, at least 40 mile per hour consistent winds. Uh, so communicating, especially downward, um, is you know difficult to get get your voice out. So he's yelling at me, and I'm telling him, you know, I don't know what he's saying, but I'm telling him come up to this flat spot. Um, it's a lot easier for us to hang out here, and this is more of a windbreak too, so it's you know less exposed. Um, so he was he was laying down at this point. And, and I, I kind of got a, got the realization that he might not be able to move as Ben, um, one of our friends that was also climbing with us, climbed up to him and then started talking to him. Um, so what ended up happening is his shoulder actually popped out of his socket. And I believe uh, in the aftermath, you know, after he got the x-rays, after the whole trip was over, we flew home. Um, He was able to determine that there was a small uh, nick or fracture or crack in one of his, uh, either his arm or the socket of his uh, shoulder. And that, you know, confirms our actions for what we did afterwards, which was short rope him down the whole mountain um, and take him, you know, 
in a non-skiing, non-climbing capacity down the mountain without any more risk. So uh, luckily it all worked out pretty well. Got it. So you just had to kind of bail out on that. Yeah. Now, when you short rope somebody like that, so he, did you even consider telling him like, okay, maybe we can take some of your gear and you can try to ski down? Uh, or was the conditions just too dangerous for that? Right. So the snow conditions were pretty icy. And as far as his gear goes, we took every single thing that he had other than his uh, big puffy jacket. Um, so he was wearing, you know, a big, mm-hmm. big puffy. He had his arm in a sling, which Derek, one of my, uh, another one of my buddies, another person who was climbing with us, he brought a triangular bandage, which we, we were able to construct a sling out of and sling his arm. Um, and then we also had a length of webbing, which I used to lead down climb, basically kick huge steps for Mike. And uh, Derek ended up uh, climbing behind him kind of in a belay style, um, just making sure that if he did slip, uh, Mike had someone on his uh, line that could self-arrest him above him. Um, and Mike, he just walked down with his offhand with an ice axe and his jo- dominant hand in a sling, um, which in that capacity, no matter, I don't think he would have been able to self-arrest. Um, and it was definitely a day where if you did slip, um, if you got any momentum, you were you were cooking down the rest of the slope. So uh, making that call up there was kind of hard because we were obviously it was it was like 11 a.m. I think um, great weather for Fuji in the winter um, and snow conditions definitely acceptable that it's skiable you know um, the other people that were with us other than Derek and myself did ski down um, from where we were. So uh, it's definitely doable in those conditions, but we we didn't make the summit because because uh, Mike got injured. Um, but we were able to escort him six thousand feet down the slope. So I I thought that was a that was a good win overall in the day. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Is I was trying to um, figure out what the you know the the climbing gain is on on Fuji. So it's it's a lot more than the whites. It sounds like. So Fuji in the winter is a little bit different. Um, you can't get to where, you know, 99.9 of the people who climb Fuji normally start. Um, so where we started was the Gotemba train station. And this is one of the lower stations, but it's the one that you can park at with like an RV and it's plowed. Um, so in the summer, I think you go up a little bit higher, but um, we basically had an 8,000 foot day ahead of us. Um, to get to the summit and we got most of the way there um by 11 a.m i would say i mean six thousand feet by 11 a.m is a really good pace we started at probably two or three a.m um with skis a big group uh i think i think we did pretty well but uh of course with that with that kind of injury you have to turn around so I think the real takeaway here, though, is, you know, we were prepared. We made the right decision. It was the right time. We had decent enough weather where this wasn't really a showstopper. We didn't need search and rescue. And uh, a few of us were able to ski a lot of the mountain. So 
Nice. And did he, did you say, I know you talked about this, but did he end up he going to the hospital in Japan or did he wait till he got back into the, the U.S. To, to get checked out? No. So after Fuji, we had, I think, one or two more days of skiing uh, where Mike just took it easy. And then he went, we went home and then he had got the x-rays and found out that he did actually uh, mess up his bone structure, whether it be the shoulder or the arm, I forget. And then is this the crew that you typically go on your, your big adventures or was this a mix of new people that you've gone with? Well, so for this crew, uh, I've been on a couple different ski adventures and I do a lot of touring with them and a lot of mountain biking and hiking. Um, I had gone to the cheat shocks with them before and we had done an overnight, but, um, we had never, never done anything this big or at, at actual altitude, right. Which is for me, you know, over 12,000 or so. That's when you start getting, most people will show signs of if they're, you know, able to handle the lack of oxygen or if they start to change a little bit. Um, so with this crew, it was relatively new, but I knew from, you know, Mike, the guy who gets injured, he can ride his bike a hundred miles without blinking. Um, Derek can do the same. You know, these guys are athletes. They're all very squared away. So I, I really didn't have any reservations on that regard. But um, obviously, you know, we did have someone slip, fall, get get injured. So maybe maybe the experience level wasn't quite there for the objective we were taking on. But again. You never know what's going to happen, so that that that's just what happened that day. So yeah, well, very cool. That's interesting. I did. I just don't think of Japan in terms of like that huge amount of snowfall. But I know, you know, again, I've seen different uh, movies and and the Olympics with the different ski routes. So it's interesting. I just I always think of Japan in terms of those big, you know, lighted cities and not not so much the mountains. But I'd love to get out there someday. Oh yeah. Uh, but you guys got in uh, right under the wire with COVID too. Right, right. And in terms of the cities, oh man, they're there too. We went to Tokyo. We went to the the uh, most busy intersection or busiest intersection in the world and yeah you can there's infinite people there too so it's kind of a contrast once you drive the rv you know a couple hours outside of the city it's like mountain you know spread out people have farmland things like that um but the city yeah there's people sleeping in um <laughs> apartments that make a studio in new york look huge so so yeah, definitely. But yeah, I highly recommend if you ever can get out to Japan. It's quite the experience. The food itself is uh, enough a reason to travel. So yeah, cool. Well, that's good stuff. But I wanted to um, switch to Alaska here. So when you were on the show last time, we talked about some of your adventures on Denali and Mount Sanford. Uh, but you were heading out to do a new adventure. So for the audience, just a reminder. So Jeff is a, you know, he's done a lot of, you know, high elevation mountaineering and he, uh, he's sort of like the, one of the, um, you know, sort of one of the most experienced backcountry skiers in the, the Northeast area here. So uh, he's got a lot of experience in those areas, but sea kayaking, I think is something you've been, you've gotten into in the last couple of years. So you were heading to Alaska to do like a, a sea kayaking adventure with with a pretty prolific um, sea kayaker. But before we get into the details of that adventure, can you talk a little bit about how you got into sea kayaking and, and sort of what, what it 
what the appeal is to uh, to you for for doing it yeah yeah absolutely so uh sea kayaking is kind of a niche thing you know not not a lot of people do it um but it's another way to i guess adventure or see the world with some sort of medium between you and what you're traveling through right so if you're skinning on snow and you're using skis and you're skiing down a mountain or you're pedaling a mountain bike on a trail or on a road um, or paddling a kayak out in the ocean. It's, it's just another way to adventure. So in that, you know, lowest level that, that, that's exactly what all of my outdoor adventures are kind of pursuing is just seeing the world and the adventure. It's not necessarily the adrenaline or, um, you know, crazy ski mountaineering <clears throat> or skiing steep lines. It's, uh, it's more just seeing the world and being able to adventure whatever format it is. Um, so my buddy, my main climbing partner, Alex, he, um, he had done a Knowles course and he had done a 30 day sea kayaking trip. And I thought that was pretty crazy. You know, I'd never done any sea kayaking and this was a year before we went and skied Denali. Um, so when we went to Denali right after that, we spent, um, five days in Whittier renting a tandem sea kayak and sea kayaking and camping near the glaciers that fed into the ocean there or into Whittier Bay. Um, and that opened my eyes completely. I was like, wow, this is another way to carry not only what you can carry in a backpack, you know, or in panniers on a bike, but more than a backpack in a sled on snow is a tandem sea kayak or a sea kayak. Um, you can just carry an infinite amount of gear and still, you know, hold at least a three, maybe four mile per hour pace if uh, if it's good conditions. So that that kind of opened my eyes to how far you can really go because you can pack a sea kayak for months. You can pack a ski mountaineering kit for maybe a month backpacking. I mean, it's really debatable on how far you can go. Some people, you know, can bang out 60 mile days. That's That's not me, but... Um, it just shows you how capable that method of transport is, and that that's what was so alluring to me. Um, and also, I just love the ocean, right? Living near Maine, living in New England, just being by the ocean my whole life, um, being able to see it from the water now. Um, like going to Acadia and being able to just <clears throat> see all the mountains and cliffs from the water instead of the mountains I've hiked has just been amazing. So. Um, yeah, my buddy Alex, he bought a sea kayak. I was interested in it. I ended up going on Craigslist, buying one. Um, and the rest is history. You know, we learned the Eskimo roll. We learned how to self-rescue. We learned how to do, you know, surf waves in, how to surf launch. Um, and just the, you know, ordinary camping, four season camping and high winds and things we already knew from our previous adventures. Got it. And then, so you did a lot, you've done a lot of um, sea kayaking around the Northeast. Have you ever gone, I guess, what's the farthest you've gone in the Northeast region? Yeah, so sea kayaking in the Northeast, I've uh, done a lot around the Boston area, around the Portsmouth area, and all the way up to the Canadian border on the Maine coast. Um, So one of our trips we did from Bar Harbor to to Canada uh, coast. And that was actually during the height of the pandemic. We we had a plan to go up into Canada and do some kayaking, but it was closed. Um, so we ended up defaulting to a, a eight-day trip along the coast of Maine from Bar Harbor up to Canada. It was uh, 
I think 160 something miles. I forget the specifics there, but um, good trip, not a crazy pace. And Maine is just, it's incredibly interesting. You know, there's islands and caves and cliffs and different features and old military bases and history everywhere. So super fascinating. Yeah, and I would say I would assume from from kayaking in that particular area, especially northern Maine, that you probably are going to places that people re- rarely ever visit. I would think. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been people there because you know during the wars, um, World War II, at least all these islands were used for a lot of different military purposes, a lot of uh, sub spotting or you know early detection systems for threats. Um, so they're having people there, but, um, now, yeah, it's very laid back. There's mostly just lobster boats and, uh, people who are fortunate enough to see kayak, you know, one of the parts called the bold coast, I believe there's about 20 miles of, uh, you know, super tall cliff where you can't really land. So yeah, it's very rare to see anyone out there. Um, that's not in a lobster boat or some sort of, you know, uh, yacht or something like that. Yeah, and is there like a rule of thumb around like you have to stay a certain distance f- close to land, or do you go pretty far out into open water? Uh, so that's a great question, Mike. For sea kayaking, I mean, there is, you know, the sky is the limit. There have been people who have crossed from California to Hawaii in a sea kayak, you know, over two months. Um, so there's really no rule or standard that you have to follow. Um, generally the average sea kayaker does hug the coast, but of course, I mean, we'll get into this when we talk about the Alaska trip, but there are decisions that you can make on your course, especially on big trips where if you complete a crossing, it might save you a couple of weeks, or if you complete a crossing, you can see, uh, an Island that has a unique feature that not a lot of people see, um, so there is a lot of um, attractiveness to crossing to different islands or crossing bays. Uh, but most of the time, uh, the excitement does happen along the, the land. Um, so people tend to stick to that. Got it. And then what are some strategies? I would assume I'm thinking like northern Maine, even even in the summer, it can get a little chilly. And when you're on the water, you never know what you're going to be dealing with. But what, do you, what are some of the sort of the standard gear and strategies you use to ensure that you can stay warm even when it's you know, the, the water may be kicking up or it may be cold on the ocean. Sure. So, uh, kayakers biggest friend in cold water is the dry suit. Um, so from the bottom of your toes all the way up to your neck and your wrists, um, you're in a heavy duty Gore-Tex layer, which, um, you know, imagine a really heavy duty Gore-Tex raincoat and kind of triple that up. Um, that's, that's what a dry suit is. It's, uh, it's, it's almost like a Gore-Tex gator and how thick it is. Um, and that covers your entire body. Um, and doesn't allow any water to get in. So within that dry suit, you have the option to layer however you like. Um, the key thing is not to overlayer, but also not to underlayer because once the dry suit's on, um, you have very little that you can do to adjust. You know, you have your hand layers, your head layers. You can put or take off your life jacket, um, or you can use what's called an overcag, which goes over your skirt and your dry suit. Um, and this is big marshmallow type of thing. 
Um, so for the real problem with sea kayaking and staying warm is your feet and your hands. Uh, your hands obviously are exposed to a splash of water. You know, they're inches away from the water, millimeters away from the water sometimes yeah. when you're when you're taking a paddle stroke. Um, and especially once it gets wavy, they get splashed every single time. So what you do for that, at least what I've found is the best, is neoprene. What I had was a two millimeter, uh, super thin, uh, what's called a hydro skin glove. And then over that, I had a seven millimeter Mm -hmm. uh, neoprene mitten. Um, And that worked for 95% of the days. Only one of the days, um, well, two or two of the days, I would say, because it was a long stretch of cold weather. Um, It actually snowed in the morning. And then it was blowing like 20 to 30 mile power wind and in the thirties. And that was enough to kick up a little bit of surf and my hands were cold that day. But other than that, it was pretty much uh, perfect. Um, that system worked great. And I had a backup pair of thicker lining gloves if, if I needed more. And you don't have to worry about like sweating, sweating uh, internally, wearing the dry suit. Well, you do to an extent, right? I mean, any any sort of clothing system is susceptible to being less effective when you sweat. Um, with the dry suit, uh, the thing is, you're you're kind of planning for the worst case scenario, which is you falling out of your boat into the water. Um, so when we're kayaking up in the Arctic ocean, mm-hmm. water's 30 something degrees. Um, the dry suit, if you layered for the 30 degrees, you would just be cooking, sweating the entire time while you're paddling. So you can't really layer it to that extent, but you also don't want to layer to an extent where you're nice and cool and you want to paddle fast all day. Um, so it's kind of this balance, um, but really what the dry suit does is it buys you time <clears throat> against hypothermia if you lose your boat or fall out of your kayak. And at these temperatures in this climate, it's um, just an amazing piece of gear to, to keep you warm, right? Um, because you got wind, um, you got rain sometimes, you have you know these different things that cool you off and just being in a suit that's 100% Gore-Tex is uh, kind of one of the more safe ways to do it versus, uh, you know, using dry suit bibs or a dry top or neoprene. Um, so we, we went with the dry suit method. Got it. All right. So this adventure, let's get into this, like how, how the hell you got into this ridiculous adventure here. So right. this was a, a, a a sea kayaking trip in Alaska, and you were basically riding in support of a project that um, a lady by the name of Freya Hoffmeister is doing. Can can you talk about who who is she and what is her project, and how did how did you get roped into doing this? Yeah, sure. So Freya Freya Hoffmeister is a world renowned sea kayaker. Um, she's done a lot of very impressive things all over the world. Uh, mostly known for circumnavigating uh continents right so australia she's paddled around south america she's paddled around those are the two um wildly impressive achievements that she's been able to do um she's also paddled around smaller islands like uh, ireland or iceland um things like that um you know just dot her achievement list um she's also done a bunch of skydiving she's jumped out of a airplane above the north pole 
Um, done a ton of cool stuff. Um, so she's working on circumnavigating as her last project, um, North America. And North America is the largest one she's going to tackle, right? Because Australia is pretty small in, the, in terms of continents. And then South America is a little bit smaller than North America. And mm-hmm. um, I was able to join her for eight weeks um, going in um, from Wales to Wainwright, Alaska. Um, how I was able to get with um, this trip is I, I just messaged her on Facebook because she's been looking for new partners to paddle with. During the pandemic, it's been a lot harder for her to find paddlers, so she prefers to have a North American partner for this section. Um, and that was kind of key for her to getting someone there because I think, you know, most countries couldn't travel here and a lot of countries um, had at least a 14 or higher day waiting period. Um, so that kind of explains, you know, what she's doing and how I got uh, the chance to join her for this trip. Nice. And were you, um, did you feel when you started looking into this, did you feel confident that this was in your wheelhouse and that you could kind of hang with somebody that's done that much? Um, I guess, is that accomplished and, and, and has done so many adventures like this? Well, I honestly, uh, I guess the answer would be no. I thought um, the biggest crux of the entire route, it was a 38 mile crossing from Cape Espenberg to Kotzbue, Alaska. And this crosses the Kotzbue Sound. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of crossing, the biggest, that's uh, kind of a, a thing in sea kayaking. A large crossing always increases risks because uh, you're basically super far away from land uh, to the extent where, you know, everywhere you look is just pure ocean. So um, to get a feel for that, it's like, uh, you know, being super far out there on a remote mountain peak. Um, the ability to rescue or to quickly get out of the situation or hit the off button um, doesn't exist, right? You're, you're on a crossing. Uh, the only way you finish it is by getting to the end of the crossing. So <clears throat> the, the biggest problem we faced or section on the trip was the 38-mile crossing, and that's, that's what I was most nervous about. I'd never spent, you know, 12-plus hours in a sea kayak without getting out of it. You know, I'd never done any crossing over, I think, 10 miles at that point. Um, so that was where a lot of my uh, doubt lied. However, the rest of the trip, I knew that long-term Alaskan camping was kind of what I enjoyed. Um, remote adventure was what I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that that aspect, as well as just, you know, colder weather sea kayaking, um, suited me. I, I, the, the thing I hate most is when it's 90 degrees and you're just getting blasted by the sun on the ocean. Um, that that's much harder than, you know, having 30 degree wind and being in a dry suit in my opinion. So, yeah, yeah. No, one of the thing I was curious about is, so you have like an established team that you've done most of your adventures, like you and it sounds like Alex sort of know each other inside and out. You're walking into this with a, an entirely new person that you haven't, uh, you know, done logistics with. You don't know sort of the camping situation and the pacing. And c- can you talk a little bit about that and your thoughts going into this about 
just making this much of a commitment with somebody that you haven't haven't worked with before yeah that that was uh one of the big um issues of this whole trip i think is i didn't actually know freya before the trip and obviously we'll get into the the negative uh kind of aspects of what happened during the whole trip but um it was definitely a huge change for me because yeah the partners i go with 90 percent of the time are extremely experienced know me or we've done trips together and maybe i'm trying to teach them something or they're you know willing to learn or willing to come with and the trip isn't super high importance um for this trip when you look up freya's credentials it's hard to you know for the naive paddler for someone who doesn't know her for someone who's looking to do a super remote long trip um, it's hard to see the negatives of what could happen. So I think a lot of us who have been paddling with Freya kind of just got mixed up in the whole, um, Freya's done amazing stuff. I just want to go with her and I should do this and it's going to be an amazing trip. Um, and don't get me wrong. It was an absolutely life changing trip, but there was a lot of things because I hadn't met her because I hadn't, you know, known or didn't know what she was all about and kind of her outlook on life and just trips in general. Um, that definitely was apparent when I met her and when we started to go through the trip as the weeks went on. Um, it was it was definitely one of the biggest challenges of the trip. And I, I, I didn't realize that it would be to the extent that it was. Um, a lot of, our, of her other paddling partners had contacted me and um, you know, warned me about the challenges and what was hard about it, um, what was going on and how the dynamics are kind of skewed to her favor, if you will. And I took it yeah. with the best viewpoint I possibly could because I, I view myself as a person who can get along with a lot of difficult people, a lot of uh, different people and a lot of people who enjoy the outdoors. I can kind, I can always find common ground with. Um, so I just took that as kind of a challenge, you know, if, if everybody is saying a lot of negative stuff about her, I think that I could turn this into a positive experience and on the whole it was, but, um, a lot of the warnings that they had mentioned weren't heated as much as I should have heated them. So definitely interesting dynamic, not knowing the person that you're going with. Nice. Well, I want to dive into that a little bit, but before we do, um, logistically, and again, I know that you have a lot of experience sort of packing for these long, um, you know, adventures from a mountaineering perspective. I have to imagine that it's not that dissimilar to logistically, you know, some of the other things that you've done. But can you talk a little bit about the logistics, like how are you packing food? What is the flight situation? Are there bailout plans along the way? What is the camping arrangements? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot to cover. I'll try and take it, you know, step by step. So uh, let's just start at where you live, right? So I live in New Hampshire. I've got to fly from Logan to Seattle to Anchorage to Nome and then to Wales, Alaska, right? So right there that's a significant amount of travel time, right? It's across the country, multiple connecting flights, transferring to airports that are pure gravel, right? Zero um, 
terminal, zero baggage claim. Um, your duffel bag is placed on the ground mm. when you land uh, where you land. So, you know, keep that kind of mindset. Um, also, coming from Boston in June yep. and landing in Wales in uh, or, yeah, late June from Boston, landing in Wales early July. Um, Wales was 38 degrees when we landed. So, um, significant amount of temperature shock that you'll face when you do go that far and land in Wales. And that's Wales, you can see Russia from. That's, that's a real thing. Um, people who claim you can see Russia from Alaska are telling the truth. So I figured that I'd mention that too. Um, so uh, in terms of logistics. Oh, Sarah Palin will appreciate that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a true thing. That's, that's not a joke. Um, but yeah, logistics wise, um, you know, any other trip that you do, usually there's a big problem getting your gear there. Um, you know, say you do a ski mountaineering trip. Um, skis, poles, wands, gas, all that stuff's, you know, hard to get places. Now let's introdu introduce a 18 foot, 10 inch by 20.5 inch fiberglass, uh, boat. So now, um, does that fit into any carry on luggage? Is that smaller than uh, Chrysler Pacifica? No. It's a, a massive, huge, long uh, logistical challenge, right, to get this uh, piece of equipment that's extremely specialized, not available anywhere. If parts break on transit, you're waiting a long time to get them shipped to where you are launching your boat. Um, that's the biggest logistical challenge is getting that there. Um, and then also, you know, figuring out what you're going to do for fuel. So in the United States, Hazmat Parcel allows you to ship, um, you know, MSR, Snowpeak, uh, Gigapower, you know, any of those uh, fuel canisters that are isobutane. And then sea kayaking, you know, it's not below 30 degrees, yep. so you can use uh, isobutane for gas. So all that was relatively simple. But yeah, flying the kayaks there and hers actually came from Germany. So um, the logistics were just in incredibly intense um, to get the trip going. We actually spent uh, a little bit of time waiting for uh, food supplies to show up at one of our halfway points. So there's a, there's a lot of things to think about with logistics. Uh, but the, the main idea behind these logistics and how to be successful with them is to have the amount of time um, that you need to plan for unforeseen uh, consequences and the positive outlook that, hey, our food didn't show up today. If it gets here in two days, that's great. We'll have a bunch of food and we can still continue our trip because, you know, this trip is 50 days. You know, you have to, yep. you have to assume that things will break, things will go wrong. Um, your repair kit's extensive, your medical kit's extensive, things like that. And in regards to how far between uh, villages, uh, two weeks was about the max, but these villages, again, are a couple hundred people. And, you know, some of them don't even have, you know, runways with a building. You know, some of them don't even have postal offices, things like that. So 
when you're at a village, it may not mean that you can get what you need or send home what you need or vice versa. Well, what are these people that live in the villages like? They are incredibly friendly, happy people. It's uh, the the people that are there are a mix, right? So there's, you know, in Point Hope, there's like a absolute melting pot of people from all over the world. You got Russian people, Japanese people, African-American people, Inuit people. Um, but in some of the other towns, it's, you know, people from you know California or Montana and then Inuits. Um, 99% of the people who are there, they, they understand that where you are on the planet is extremely remote and, um, not easy to live in or live at. Um, so you're always going to find a helping hand whenever you talk to any of these people, you're always going to find a friendly, um, you know, demeanor when you when you talk to these people because a lot of the hardships that they face um it's relieved by how well they all work together right so um say somebody's sled breaks down you know you can easily thumb a ride get a buddy to take it to back to your house and figure it out later or you know if you need water or something like that i would walk up talk to somebody there and they said, Oh yeah, well, Bob, bring it right to the water source, you know, hop on my ATV and we'll get you all settled. Um, and the list goes on and on. So they were just incredibly kind people and just the deep culture of a variety of things, whether it's whaling or shamans or, you know, different religious beliefs that I hadn't experienced before. So absolutely great people. Awesome. Now, is it safe to say like basically for bailout plans, you're you're looking at like you've got to basically just get to the next village and then that's where you can even then logistically it's going to be difficult but at minimum you've got to get to a village so that you can pull the plug if you need it to right right so yes I'll, i guess i'll just explain uh maybe a scenario say you're you've got a problem and you're three days from a village right and you paddle up to the village um that village may have a list of you know flights before that that need to get out and they may have you know a five-day storm that isn't let any isn't letting any planes fly for the next five days so unless it's a extreme emergency where like the coast guard or the you know u.s navy needs to get involved um bailing is never a simple feet you know if you're at a village and it's a good weather day and you're there and there's a plane that has more room on its uh you know cargo capacity or its uh, passenger hold maybe you could get out that day and get to a another remote village that then would connect you to anchorage um but it's it's definitely a high commitment trip right so once you leave a village you know you're in it for another week um, at least um, two weeks, you know, and when you get to that village, you know, sometimes all we did was get water and keep going. So um, there, it's not like you're pulling up to uh, Bob's general store and you can buy Twinkies and the Gatorade and stuff like that. I mean, you can sometimes, but it also costs like eight bucks for a Gatorade. So yeah, it's a lot different up there. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't survive. <laughs> 
I would not. You probably that. would. I All mean, right, well, so logistically, <laughs> this is like planes, planes. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm not going to test this, but um, it's it sounds very interesting. So eventually, basically, you get through the logistics piece of it, and you start off. And can you talk about sort of like what was the first week like, and how did you guys settle into a a routine with camp? And you know, at what point did you find out that you know maybe you and Freya weren't exactly going to be best friends for the rest of your lives yeah it was really kind of a rude awakening the first week for me um you know when freya had described what she wanted um for someone to join her trip you know she describes him as a paddling partner and a person that is you know has equal say or has equal uh you know share of responsibilities has equal you know all this stuff and that's simply it's simply just a fantasy because <laughs> uh, what you really are from the beginning to end is a Sherpa or guide or, you know, someone who takes care of a lot of the work of the trip for her while she's able to use her computer in the tent at night. Um, so there's a ton of examples I can mm-hmm. give you, but the, when you asked, you know, when did I realize this stuff was going a little bit, you know, um, unexpectedly in my viewpoint, uh, the first day we land in, uh, Wales, Alaska, Wales is an extremely small village. Um, very low income, you know, trash everywhere, 150 or so people, very friendly people helped me out. Thank God. Great people. But, um, Freya, as we were unwrapping our boats, you know, they're packed and, foam and wrap and ropes and all this stuff so it takes you a good half hour to an hour to just cut open your boat and get it all set up and adjust everything um she said hey can you take the water bags and go get water and i said sure yeah no problem and the water bags for our trip are um you know over 40 liters of water right so i go yeah yeah i'll take you know i'll take my half you know i'll throw it in my backpack and all this stuff and i'll go grab the water and she was like so that's that's a hundred pounds right uh, a little bit under a hundred pounds yeah like 80 something or i think i mean I, i'm yeah. not entirely sure yeah probably a little bit higher with the weight of the bags and everything like that um but that's kind of that gives you an idea of what we needed for our resupplies. At least in the beginning, it was just pure salt water. No, no good, no good freshwater streams. But so, you know, it's the first day of the real trip. We've spent three days with each other, um, you know, buying groceries, repackaging food into hundreds of Ziploc bags, sorting out food supplies, um, sorting out gear, packing gear, etc. And the first day we get on the trip, she's like, yeah, go fill up all the water. And the water source is a mile and a half away, right? Um, and she's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to unwrap my kayak and figure it out while while you go get this stuff. And I was like, well, you really want me to carry all this stuff back? And she's like, oh, you know, it'll be fine. Like it's uh, one of your responsibilities is getting all the water. And I was just like, "Oh wow, okay." I didn't, I didn't realize that that was one of our uh, not shared camp chores, but my camp chore. Um, and you know, the rest continued that way, if you will. It was uh, kind of hilarious how quickly my partner would go from 
kayaking for the day. The tent is up and then she's in the tent until the next day where she gets out and starts kayaking uh, early in the morning. So um, it was a very quick uh, awakening of how the dynamic was going to be. And her asking for paddling partners per se is uh, it's, it's just very misleading. So. Got it, got it. So you're you're used to sort of this collaborative effort where, you know, you and Alex and whoever else you join up, you're all sort of equally dividing the work and it's all sort of a, a team with a singular goal. And now you find yourself, I call it, so So you you uh, you said Sherpa, but there's also this concept in, in road cycling called domestique. So you've got a team leader like the Lance Armstrong, and then there's six other people on that team that are basically the domestiques that are making sure that you know he's he's in position to win the uh, the race so that's that's a little interesting if you're supposed to be a partner and you're you're the the workhorse right yeah and i i understand where freya was coming from right it's her huge trip she's done all this amazing stuff um she's incredibly famous she's paid for the boat transportation um but at the end of the day when you're on a trip for eight weeks and you treat you know, your partner as someone who's kind of a, I don't know, second class kind of cook or Sherpa or domestique, as you say. <laughs> well, that sounds like he's the leader of the group, which would be a little bit <laughs> different. But um, either way, it's it's definitely a, yeah. a fundamental where, you know, after a 50-mile after a day of sea kayaking, I'm tired too. But, uh, you know, I've got to set up the bear fence, load the shotgun, cook everything, you know, drag her kayak up the beach, hang and take down her clothing, and then do all this stuff for her. It's it's kind of one of those things where it makes you kind of just scratch your head. You're not uh, what was described in the initial trip offering. But again, you know, I'm the person who went into this trip with zero knowledge of how the dynamic was going to be or how, you know, ultimately inexperienced and um, reliant on me she was. So that kind of changed the whole dynamic for a much different course than I saw, you know, in my mind beforehand. Interesting. Did you find that there were days that you guys sort of just had a good good time out on the water or was it just a, a constant grind because I, I have to imagine there's got to be some beautiful scenery you must have seen some incredible wildlife at some point like what were some of the high points for you well that's the thing on the water freya is an amazing paddling partner she uh you know her vision for the sea her ability to you know understand different features of the terrain how shoals affect water how currents will affect water tides um, weather patterns, identifying clouds, things like this. She's, you cannot have a, a bigger asset. Um, so we had a lot of amazing times. You know, we saw a variety of, of different wildlife, whether it was dead or alive. Um, we saw cliffs that were, you know, 1,500 feet tall with birds on it, you know, in the thousands. Um, we saw a lot of amazing things, walrus herds, whales, bowhead whales, um, beluga whales, just, just amazing stuff. You know, thousands and thousands of uh, starfish, jellyfish, things like that. But, uh, 
yeah, that, that was kind of the, the difference between the on water and off water was really what was, what was the deal there. Um, while we were kayaking, you know, there were waterfalls, grizzly bears, caribou, everything on the water. And it was just, it was amazing. Um, we were also in, you know, it, it just kind of feels cool to me at like just the fundamental level to be just so far out there with what you have packed and what you are traveling with and like what you're capable of doing. And just like knowing that like there's been, I don't know, a couple other people to ever kayak the shore and who has ever camped. We, we have camped like probably nobody. It's just kind of cool to be so far out there, like hundreds of miles away from the most remote village and then thousands of miles away from like the nearest CVS. So it's just kind of cool to like be in that mindset, be in that, that kind of life. Yeah. And it's so funny you say that because a lot of times like I'll pat myself on the back, just I'm in the middle of the Pemi wilderness and I'm sort of like, I'm so far from civilization, but you're, you're sort of like, you know, hold my beer times a hundred when it comes to going out into Alaska, like an adventure, like you just went on. Um, as far as the, I guess the, the camp set up, obviously like it sure. sounds like you were responsible for sort of a disproportionate amount of the work, but how exactly does that work? Like how long, once you wrap up a day and you, you find your site, like how long does it actually take you to, you know, get the water, set up the camp and, and get ready to go to bed. And then how long did you guys actually like sleep at night? And then, you know, when would you normally get up? Right. Yeah. It's, it's really not that bad. I mean, it's like just having a good couple hours of chores, but it's after a long day of kayaking and you've got, you know, infinite daylight. So I won't say it's like a huge deal. Like if you were solo doing all the chores yourself, you know, it's not that big of a deal breaker. And that's kind of the mindset I adopted is uh, I just said, you know, if I was alone doing this trip, you know, what, how could I complain about this right now? Right. So, uh, but to answer your question, so we'd wake up four thirty, five, five thirty, 5, um, maybe later if the weather dictated it. Although that was another struggle with Freya. Um, she didn't understand. She didn't seem to understand that Alaska is kind of a 24 hour um, decision making realm where, you know, you have light for 22 hours. That's as bright as noon. And you've got two hours. That's as dark as a full moon or dusk. So you can see, you can read a, you can read a book inside the tent without a headlamp. So when you look at the weather and when you look at how you want to approach these different areas that you need to progress through, um, you can take the 24-hour clock into your consideration, right? It's not a um, – we only have 12 hours, 16 hours of daylight. Um, that's not true, right? So you have this entirety of the time frame. Um, so that was a big thing that we just were never able to kind of mesh on. Um, as soon as I got into Alaska, I was like, well, time to adapt to whatever time frame we want. As long as the weather is good, we can paddle. And that's like how the previous trip reports that I've read, you know, they would launch at 1 a.m. in calm waters, bang out a ton of miles and all that. And uh, 
yeah, that was kind of a struggle in that regard. Um, but after, so after we set up camp, right, it's, um, we get on the water at maybe seven, uh, the days range from starting at seven to ending at noon, um, starting at seven to ending at midnight, you know, huge days. And, uh, you know, setting up camp, it was, we both set up the tent immediately first. And then from then on, Freya empties her stuff into the tent, gets into her sleeping bag, whips out her laptop, starts typing on her blog, which I think takes a little bit longer for her because she's German. There's a difference in language. And then she also starts editing her pictures mm-hmm. Um, and that is like her main objective as soon as she stops kayaking, where as soon as the tent's up, you know, you've got two kayaks by the water, you got to cook dinner, you got to set up your bear fence. Um, you got to load the shotgun, wrap it up in between you. Obviously you set up your own stuff to camp. Um, and then there's the whole idea of, you know, the decision-making talk of, what the weather is tomorrow and how we wanted to look at that. I had uh, one of the weather band radios that works like all over the globe. Uh, Freya actually has someone who yep. sends her text messages on her Iridium sat phone um, that shows her what the weather will be the next day. Um, I found it was kind of a 50-50% accuracy. Um, so it's really wake up in the morning and see what you want to do. Um, and figure out what the day is going to be. So that that that's the that's the key. But yeah, the the entire camp vibe is uh, it's pretty tough when you look at it. You know, if your partner is just immediately in their sleeping bag trying to warm their core body temperature, and you're uh, in the pouring rain in your dry suit, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely uh, no matter how long it takes. You know, a couple hours or so for chores at night. It's definitely a hard on hard on the uh, mental aspect of you're not chipping in at all. Why should I help you out? So yeah, yeah exactly. Do you um, so the original commitment? What were you going to do? Like sixty days or something? Like what? What was the? At what point did you uh, bail? I guess bail out for, and and say you know what I'm 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 done with this and I'm moving on. Yeah. So the bailout kind of an interesting thing um the first week i got into the trip we were in wales i uh started to understand what the dynamic was going to be we were no longer um quote unquote partners we were no longer uh kind of sharing the duties of preparing for the trip equally um but after that I kind of, I had a realization myself. I kind of just looked, I also had an e-reader and I was reading a lot of different just philosophy stuff. And I started to think more internally and more just what would I do if I had a stronger mind? What would I do if I could deal with this situation without creating a reaction that upset me? Um, so I started to just think like that. Right. And I just thought, you know, if I was alone on this trip and I had to do all this stuff, this is what it would be like, but it would just be a little bit easier. Right. I wouldn't have to, you know, pull Freya's boat up to the launch. I wouldn't have to 
grab stuff out of her boat that she forgot. I wouldn't have to, you know, do all this stuff, peg out the tent when it's pouring rain because she wakes me up to ask me to peg it out. All this stuff would have been done by me or done by me earlier solo or maybe not even done by me, but it would have been easier. And so that's the mindset I adapted. And once I did that, the second week to probably the seventh week, I was able to create kind of a Zen state of uh, how I approached interactions and conversations with Freya. And I just internalized and cried, just tried to see it as a, a challenge or a necessary duty to have a trip like this. And once I did that, um, it wasn't till wow. um, the last of the weeks, eight weeks in, um, I had been talking to Freya consistently about how huge it would be for me to reach Barrow. Um, Barrow is the northernmost point on the continent, uh, or well, northernmost point in the United States. Um, you know, just huge, huge area with a lot of rich history, whaling, just amazing. And uh, I wanted to kayak there. And about a week before we were going to end, Freya was saying, um, Cedric, our next kayak partner, needs to change in Wainwright, the village right before Barrow. Uh, because if he doesn't have anything, we want it to be able to be shipped to Barrow. After Barrow, there's no towns that you can get any resupplies, right? So I saw that. Makes sense. It definitely does. You know, if he doesn't have some gear that he needs, after Barrow, you're shit out of luck. You got to improvise. But I thought it was also kind of a, you know, after I'd expressed to Freya how much that meant to me, that was kind of one of the things that she took from me because uh, she didn't have any timelines, but she thought that that was the best time to switch. And with me, I had more time, but at the end of it, it was also, uh, we were at the point where, um, she was, you know, just trashing me on the blog to an extent that wasn't reality. She was making up her own reality, and uh, yeah, yeah. I just decided to put down the throttle in the last couple of days and meet her at camp. And is she still is she still out there right now? No. So what happened was is I flew home, and she wrote a variety of blog posts about how. I had bailed out early and that, um, you know, I had quit before the end of the trip. But from when I started that week to the ending, um, she had explained that you need to leave at this time. Um, you're no longer welcome on this trip. And it's just not reflected at all in her blog post, which kind of set the reality of the trip, right? I mean, I'm just a guy who lives in New Hampshire. I haven't kayaked like, you know, continents and stuff. She's got a lot more, you know, punching weight than me. And I'm only a guy who can talk about what actually happened. But um, yeah, so all that was kind of misrepresented. And I left in Wainwright um, to Barrow, and uh, as soon as she understood that there was ice in Barrow, um, Cedric showed up. So he flew from New York to Seattle to Anchorage to Barrow to Wainwright. 
and was turned turned away from her trip. And that, uh, to me, is you know, oh, wow. incredibly uh, inconvenient to say the least to the guy who showed up like that. If I showed up after flying four flights, thousands of dollars, and was told to go home, I would be, uh, you know, a little bit ticked off. Do you think? I'm curious. And I see this with, you know, the piece as you're describing this, like I keep thinking about Diane Nyad, who was this like ultra swimmer. I think she swam from Cuba to Florida. And, you know, she was always like sort of her, her public persona was always like really well established. She was all over the, you know, the uh, Y world of sports and all these different places in the 80s. And, and it turned out like the real stories behind the scene were that she was a complete monster. Um, do you think like with Freya, do you think she loves the kayaking or has it become this sort of beast that she just has to s sort of deal with where, you know, it's it's her it's her livelihood. It's what she's known for. She's made the commitment to complete the 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 circumnavigation of these different locations and she's sort of just stuck with having to deal with it and she's just lost the love of, of the pursuit at this point. Yeah, you are 100% right in your deduction. Um, I honestly can see more life and more um, enthusiasm and more um, excitement and more personality in the Freya that has kayaked Australia and South America in my trip, when I compare, you know, who I thought was my hero, who I looked at as a person who one, you know, respected the local culture two respected the environment and three thought sea kayaking was, you know, the way to enjoy your life. You know, all three of those were just stripped away significantly spending time with her after a couple of weeks. You know, she's, you know, we were at a campsite. I mean, this happened on a daily routine. Um, we'd pack up and she would just frisbee her trash bag into the tundra behind us at the campsite. And she says, this is how Alaskans throw away their oh. trash. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I started picking it up. You know, I'm a, if you look at my Facebook posts, there's an earlier post with a huge trash bag mounted to my back deck. It's a white trash bag, and I'm carrying my trash and her trash. And then at a certain point, um, trash, you know, always expands. It never is more compact other than beers. But, you know, if you have a, a thing of baby wipes or if you have, uh, you know, a, a thing of mountain house freeze-dried meals or something like that and you're gonna you know get rid of the trash and crumple it up it doesn't get a lot smaller it starts to create a space problem and so when we first launched at our uh at the beach in wales i was like how the fuck how, you know how are we gonna understand you know how to how to pack this trash like am i am i the trash guy like obviously it's going on the decks because like every single millimeter of these hatches is full with non-trash items and uh yeah it just it just turned into this uh <clears throat> one not respecting the environment you know every campsite just throw your trash or bury it in a 
two inch sand hole or throw it under a log Two, when you get to the villages like not really respect them you just want the water and you just want the local knowledge of how we're going to see kayak and then three she is uh she needs partners she doesn't she doesn't view having partners as a challenge which what she advertises she doesn't view partners as being an actual partner she needs partners to help her do what she's doing so when her kayak's 350 pounds and she needs to move it because she's on the start of a two and a half week resupply she can't do it alone at her life right now she i mean it's just the fact of how it's going it's it's nothing against her it's nothing against any partner but she needs partners and now she just leans on them to the extent that they are her sherpas and i was one of them and i lasted as long as i possibly could so <laughs> i'm pretty proud of that for sure it's really interesting like i didn't know where the story was going to go but it is fascinating like i'm just as you're talking i'm uh you know i'm sort of on her website and she's got a lot of sponsors and she's got a lot of accomplishments but you know like we just touched on i feel like sometimes and i even talk about this with stomp sometimes on the podcast like i love hiking i love getting out there and i'm never i haven't hit that that position yet where i'm like yeah i just don't feel like hiking it doesn't excite me anymore like i'm i'm still energized by it every time i go out but i even said to stomp i said you know if this podcast ever gets to the point where i feel like i'm I'm hiking just to have content for the podcast. Like, I don't want to get to that point ever. Uh, but it sounds like, again, I, I always circle back to Diane Naya. And I know there's a guy that's hiking, like, he does all these crazy accomplishments in the um, the White Mountains. And I, I sort of get the vibe that he's sort of in the same situation where the need to accomplish the goal takes away from the love of the activity that motivated you to start it originally and I, I never want to get to that point and it's just sort of sad to me that you know somebody that is that accomplished just doesn't you know if you've gotten so far where you're just tossing trash around Alaska like that's just you've lost your way it sounds like right well I think the key especially I mean when you accelerate into doing more advanced things in your discipline quickly which what i'm trying to reference is me from skiing you know smaller peaks in the white mountains to skiing denali or you know going kayaking in maine to kayaking in alaska the spice of life is is key right you just need to switch up your discipline or what you're trying to experience you can't for Freya, it, she seems to take pride in that she has only done one thing and she has only, you know, kayaked since she could, you know, have the experience to do these long trips. Um, it doesn't, I don't think it makes you a richer person to just chase a goal that's like tough on your mentally and tough on you uh, in terms of what you actually want to do for adventure. So, that's that's definitely why I'm yeah. also, you know, I ski, I do the kayaking, I love biking, and there's really no way that I would want to ski every single day of my life. I mean, that's kind of how you ruin, ruin something, and I think uh, Freya is 
well past that point, but has already committed herself to, uh, you know, the next, I think nine or nine or 10 years of, uh, paddling around North America and she may do it, but she's going to need partners. And that's, uh, that's as, as easy as I can put it. She's going to need help. She's definitely going to need help. Yeah. It is interesting because you, know, you always hear these people that talk about like, you know, find what you love and make that your job and, you know, proceed at, at your own peril if you do that, because this is an example where maybe that's not the right idea. So any other, uh, any other thoughts or takeaways, Jeff, before we wrap it up? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, once you get to the point where you're, you think that you're able to disrespect the environment with littering and just making your camp wherever you can and, you know, not respecting the fundamentals that everybody learns as they start going and adventuring outside, that's when I really think you've lost it. And that's, uh, that's what I'll leave it with, right? As, as long as you can respect, you know, other than toilet paper, which you can bury and stuff like that, as long as you can respect the environment you're traveling through and still genuinely enjoy every day that you're out there, whether it's, you know, a bad day or something that's not not ideal for your timeline or plan, that's when, that's when you know you're doing something great. But when you start, uh, when you start just treating it like a job, that's uh that's the red flag that i would look for so yeah that's what i would say mike yeah and i would say i'm just like i'm I'm poking on your facebook page right now and that i'm looking at that i don't know if it's a sunset or a sunrise photo of uh vinyl haven here but it seems like you're you got back at it with your friends and and you know you're holding on to it doing it the right way so yeah good for you man and i definitely want to have you back on for uh, some backcountry ski talk later this winter yeah absolutely let me know um preparing for a good winter a couple months uh and then we'll be uh yeah skinning up and getting outside in the ice in the northeast so should be fun very cool all right so i will uh i'll I'll put some of your info in the show notes here. And again, thanks. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. All right, Stomp. So that was Jeff. Uh, we went a little long. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's worth it, though. That's a great tale. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. So um, I guess it's – so I could never see that happening with me and you, Stomp. If we went on like a two-week adventure and had to share a tent together, we'd be best <laughs> friends forever, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Depends how big the tent is. I would make a really big tent, two room maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I don't. Th I don't know if I can handle that. Like, I, <laughs> I'd yeah, sleep in my I kayak. <laughs> well, I, the, my biggest fear would be you would be like, uh, I'm gonna go on my laptop, and you can do all the work around camp. I would be like, ah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> oh oh man, man, I might just stay up there and join the Inuit. Yes, ne never see me again. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I think we're going to have to bail on the search and rescue news. So we'll table that for another episode. There's a few things going on that I definitely want to cover, but I think we just went a little too long here. So let's call this a, call this a wrap. Excellent. Till next time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.